24 minutes it is before the uh, top of the hour. You tuned into Metro FM Talk with me, Ayabonga Tawe, and uh, we move swiftly along. And uh, I can tell you the uh, remaining 24 minutes are going to be a humdinger. Certainly, uh, I mean, I have with me in studio someone, uh, certainly in the, in the world of economics, who's potentially done it all. Um, and even, I guess, in the world of uh, struggle, has probably done it all as well. And uh, he joins me uh, in studio. His uh, name is uh, Elias Masilela. He's a business executive and an economist. And uh, he was previously a chief executive officer of uh, the PIC. And many of us are probably itching to ask him uh, what his views are, of course, on uh, uh, that uh, two trillion strong uh, asset management firm. But Maskeskale is Swaziland because he's also, I guess, involved. Uh, in uh, some history writing and storytelling here about his own history in the kingdom of Swaziland and uh, the role of his own grandmother, uh, who, uh, of course, uh, had and uh, created a house uh, into a firm trench of the revolution, uh, many people being conscientized and, uh, of course, uh, seeing that as a a safe harbor uh, for them uh, when uh, the crime against humanity that was driven from Pretoria was wreaking havoc in many families uh, across not only our own country, but in the region. And I think many of us, when we have this debate around uh, a xenophobia, what I call Afrophobia, we forget uh, that, uh, you know, what we're dealing with now are the externalities of the economic sabotage of the apartheid regime in the region. Uh, ask anybody about that line between Beira and Harare and what uh, uh, the South African government did then, long before Tata left uh, jail. And uh, maybe we'll return to that issue at some other time. Uh, Daddy Elias, how are you? I'm very well, bro. Thank you so thanks, much uh, for joining for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, uh, I want us firstly to talk about this book here. Published in 2007, I understand. Yeah. Uh, called Number 43, uh, Trelawney Park, uh, Guamacoco. And uh, I guess it's a perfect entry point into your own biographical history in uh, the kingdom of Swaziland. And uh, I guess how that interweaves with uh, the history of the liberation movement in the region, in particular the ANC and uh, MK. Yeah, um, I think it's it's a good is a good spot to start from. Um, number forty three, the book, basically tells the story of South Africa's liberation from a Swaziland perspective. Mm. And unlike books, other books that have been written on the subject, it does not deal with the political side of the liberation. Mm. Neither does it deal with the military side. It deals with the human element of the struggle. Those people who found themselves at the crossroads and had to sit on the crossroads and hopes to survive it. Mm. Many survived and many died. Now, the Masilela family falls into the group that survived but found itself at the crossroads completely unplanned. Mm. And there are many, many more families across the region that could tell exactly the same story. Many Swazis can tell the same story. But in number 43, the interesting thing is that there's only one Swazi that was interviewed. We interviewed over a dozen Swazis who were involved, Mm. but only one agreed for their name to be revealed. Why is that? It's because of the timing of the book. Sure. It was written and to be published whilst things were still hot, as we call them that in those days. That's yes, what is. Mm. Both sides, mm. right? Um, in South Africa, it almost coincided with uh, the enactment of the TRC legislation. Mm. So a lot of people did not want their names to be shown because they didn't go to the TRC. And the TRC legislation is 
is drafted such that it criminalizes everybody. Hmm. Anybody who was there, who saw, who aided, who abated, who witnessed, mm. you don't have to have carried a gun. And it's like this moral equivalent. So those who are fighting against the system and those who are fighting in defense of the system are thrown in the same bag, it seems. Yes, mm. yes, something like that. So a lot of people were saying, we, we were willing to give you the information, but you don't want our names to be told. Mm. Now, the Masilela family finds itself at the crossroads in a very interesting way. Our father, Uptongo, Masilela, went to the Second World War, mm. came back as part of his demobilization program. He requested to be taught in bricklaying. Okay. So he did bricklaying. The first project that he did was timber location in Hamanskral, mm. just north of Pretoria. When that project ended, he had, no, he had no work to do. So he ended up moving to Johannesburg, where everybody ended up mm. looking for a job. Sure. Couldn't find the job. And he ended up setting up a, a, a construction business, which built most of the houses that are in, 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 that are standing okay. in Soweto today. Dada, let's pause there slightly. I, I need to quickly take an ad break. And when we okay. come back, we'll uh, continue on uh, the story of uh, Dada Butongo. Okay. And of course, how that, uh, I guess, round trips all, you all the way to uh, Eswatini. Yeah. And uh, of course, finding yourself in the throes of uh, uh, not only just a country in transition, but a region in transition as well. I'm in conversation with Elias Masilela. Stay tuned. This Youth Month, the Gauteng Provincial Government once again presents uh, the annual Youth Expo, a space to explore careers, innovation, entrepreneurship skills, and much, much more. Join us at the Nazareth Expo Centre between the 13th and the 17th of June of uh, 2019 and bring a friend to get your hookup. Uh, entrance is free and, uh, of course, we're growing Gauteng together. 16 minutes it is now before the uh, top of the hour. I'm in conversation with uh, business executive and economist uh, Elias Masilela and uh, probably not talking as much economics and uh, the world of investments today, uh, but uh, talking, of course, about some of the uh, legacy work and heritage work that he does and uh, also talking about uh, Guamacoco all the way out to Swatina. And if you haven't read that book, number 43, Trelawney Park, I encourage you to take a look at it if indeed you want to get a sense of uh, the human story behind much of our own struggle historiography. And, uh, uh, Baba, before we went to the break, you were speaking about the role of your grandfather, uh, Ubutongo uh, Masilela, and, uh, of course, the bricklaying he then took on after his service in uh, the uh, Second World War. Comes to Johannesburg, and I'm quite interested, of course, how you then land, land up yeah. in Swaziland. And this is where the economics comes in. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's our father, actually. Sure. Uh, when Bantu education was enacted, he decided he's not going to expose his children to that. So he made the conscious decision of moving to Swaziland for a better education. Wow. That's how we moved in 1965. Okay. Fast forward 11 years later, we have the Soweto uprisings break out. Hmm. And children have to leave South Africa for other parts of the world, yes. either to study or to train. And every parent in Soweto gave their children the same message. Mdwanam, hambye Swazi. Hmm. They'll know what to do. And that's why you have all these people, Waterford, Gamsham, all these uh, South Africans. Who, exactly, mm. right. So we then get settled with, settled with these tens of students who arrive at the door and say, oh, mamos tumela, oh, babos tumela. So this is what makes number 43. Mm. From then on, it becomes this recipient of struggle people, either going to school or going to train. Mm. And that's how we wrote the book number 43. How did that change the character of the home? 
I mean, uh, aside from just being a home, uh, which uh, of course is just for the service of the Masilela family, one would think that uh, in effect it became a halfway stop and uh, that must have changed the character of that home in very meaningful ways, least of all for you. Yeah, Precisely. It then originated what we now call as a family and the extended family of number 43 as Makogoism, mm. the spirit of giving and sharing selflessly, where we were taught that nothing that we own belongs to us alone. Mm. It ought to be shared. So the house was a shared resource. Our mother was a shared resource to Makoko. Our father was a shared resource. So at no point growing up, I would say umamwam or ubabwam. It was just ubab. Mm. Right? Because we knew that everybody claimed them as their own parents. Was Makoko not scared? I mean, you know, the, the poorer cross-border raids... All manner of, uh, you know, covert missions that they would, uh, least of all in there in Manzina, I mean, they would uh, certainly go in and do all manner of things. They're killing activists, uh, eliminating people. Uh, well, wasn't there a fear, least of all in the family, to say, look, we can easily become a target here? At first, he may, she, she may have found herself in that situation. But I guess when you find yourself at the crossroads, you have to survive. And she decided, I am not going to shut the door for these children. Mm. So every time she would be arrested and tortured, she would say, these are my children. What do you expect me to do? Mm. Throw them out onto the streets? And the, the, the source of fear only became clear when we started writing the book. Whilst we were leaving it, we didn't feel it. Mm, mm. But when we wrote the book, it became extremely clear that we're actually taking a very big risk. One of the biggest defections in the history of the ANC happened at number 43. Hmm. Which one is that? Very high in command, Glory September, hmm. who in the book, we finally classify him as an Askari. But he was very senior in the ranks of the ANC. Hmm. But people argue that he had always been a, a, a spy. Isn't that the same Sidiba Jacob Lamini writes of in his Precisely. book Ascari? Mm. If you go into the book Ascari, you will see the number of references that he makes into number 43. Yes. Basically what he's trying to do, he's trying to ask the question, why did Elias classify Glory September as an Ascari? Mm. If he is an Ascari, how many more Ascaris are in the ANC? And then he goes on to do an analysis, which means to a greater extent the majority of the leadership of the ANC could have been classified as Ascari. Mm, mm, mm. How, how, how does that give credence to, because there's a lot of rumors doing the rounds. I mean, I, I know Barry Gilder also put out a book called The List uh, fairly recently, and uh, it, it continues with this narrative that Tata Matiba apparently, and it's alleged, was given a list by the National Party that said, hey, these are some of the people who are at the top echelons of your organization uh, who uh, at some point were working for us. Very difficult to tell because... For you to find the truth, you need another commission. And I think we're fatigued yeah, with commissions yeah. in South Africa. <laughs> we don't want to do that. But what I am criticized for by a lot of people who, wrote, who read number 43 is that at the tail end of, writing, of, writing the, of putting together the manuscript, I had the opportunity of interviewing a police officer who worked with Eugene de Kock wow. in South Africa. In Flak Plus. Mm. In Flak Plus. And I had one question to ask him, why was number 43 never attacked? And very simple response. He says, there's no way you could have attacked it. 
it housed people that worked for us. Let's pause there. Seven minutes it is now before uh, the uh, top of the hour, before 9pm. I'm in conversation with a business executive and economist, uh, Elias Masilela. And we're not talking about markets today. We're talking about Makokoism and, uh, of course, how he's keeping the spirit and character of uh, uh, Makoko, who was, uh, I guess, the homeowner at uh, number 43 Trelawney Park, uh, an address that certainly has an indelible mark uh, in our struggle historiography. Now, uh, before we went to the break, uh, we made quite a startling uh, for me, startling for me, because I, I certainly wasn't uh, aware of it, but um, of how you spoke to some of these old SP guys who said, uh-uh, the reason why we didn't take that because we had assets there. We had some of our own people we were working with there. And I want us to quickly fast forward now to some of the rapid changes that were happening um, close towards the 90s. Um, and uh, well, what is the relationship like with the Swazi authorities? Because I would think they were getting a lot of pressure from the South African government uh, to uh, lean heavily on uh, Guamacoco and, of course, some of the people who live there? In the, in the book, we identify three periods. We have what we call the Sobuza era, mm. the Likoko era, and the Mswati era. Sure. The Sobuza era was a blissful period for the ANC. Mm. They were allowed to operate above ground. When, the King, so- when King Sobuza passed on or bowed, um, a council was set up. And that council literally banned the ANC. Hmm. They declared them persona non grata. That was the worst period in the history of the operation of the ANC in Swaziland. Then, a few years later, the current king, Mswati, mm. was throned, and things changed a bit. It was a mood between the Sopuza era and the Likoko era. Mm. But the relationships with the Swazi police were never, ever cordial, simply because some of them were working for the mm. apartheid regime. Mm. So Eugene de Kock, for instance, had free entry and exit into Swaziland any time of the day. Border open, border closed. He had an authority to get the borders to be open for him to drive through. Wow. Let's, let's shift away from, from that world now slightly and uh, talk about the return of the Robben Island leadership. And, uh, of course, they make one of their first stops uh, to the frontline states and go to Swaziland. Yeah. And uh, they uh, meet up with a group there, which includes yourself. And uh, you speak in the book about your engagements then on some of the economic questions, uh, which, uh, I mean, certainly from my own reading, seem to have been seen as secondary questions to the civil rights political questions uh, that uh, were put forward and, of course, the questions of the franchise and other mm. questions that were seen as more important. Just maybe recount that for us. And uh, more importantly, how do you feel that that maybe gave you a precursor of some of the other debates that would happen when you came in back to South Africa in the late 90s? Yeah, that, that was a very interesting uh, experience for me. I talk about it at the very beginning of the book mm. where Madiba did one of his first or early international trips to Swaziland as part of a SADC mission. And when he was in Swaziland, he invited South Africans to uh, come and engage with him. And I was one of the people who, who went there. 
And uh, whilst we were there, he all that he said was, ask questions, I'll answer every question, mm. any question that you ask. And I was the youngest in the gathering. I asked a question that upset him, mm. which is part of the political debate as we have in South Africa today. And as soon as I asked that question, he got so upset. He stood up and stormed out of the room. And that was the end of the evening. I spent the rest of my life subsequent to that, trying to ask myself, but why was Madiba so angry with what I considered a, an important policy question? I had to wait until 2005. He, he came to Swaziland in, he was released 89. He came to 90, Swaziland mm. at the, yeah, he was at least mm. 90, came to Swaziland towards the end of 1990. Sure. I had to wait until 2005 for me to be able to ask him the question, why he was angry with me. And what fascinated me, I was with Trevor Manuel in London and Trevor said, let's go and visit Matiba. Mm. So at the end of the visit, I then asked my question. I tried to ask it in as delicate a way as I could. Mm. Said, Tata, we are Kumbula on such and such a day, it was a Swaziland. And as before I could even ask that question, he said to me, don't worry, young man, I remember you very well. It was you then. Mm. But I couldn't answer, I, couldn't, I still couldn't ask my question. Wow. So I still don't know why he was angry. Is the Pandora's box on policy as closed as maybe Matiba's reactions were to you on both of those occasions? I'm hoping it's being open mm. and I'm hoping that people are willing to engage with it openly and objectively. Okay. How are you keeping Makoko's spirit and Makokoism alive? Um, I'm keeping it alive through the support of many people who understand the concept mm. and buy into it not only within the family but way beyond the the masilela family and we do it in a number of ways one of the ways in which we do it we have made a decision and committed ourselves that will continue writing books mm. publishing them and presenting them to schools that are deserving of those schools and those who can afford buying will buy them and to a to a large extent this production of these books mm. is on our account. As a result, we've gone to an extent of opening up a publishing uh, unit in number 43 mm. because every time we try to sell a book to your traditional publishers, sure. they're just not interested. Mm. They want sensational stories. Mm. We tell true stories. Sure. The latest story that we've told is the story of Larry McDonald, Father Larry McDonald, mm. who we argue that he is the only human being today who can stand up in a room and say, I was responsible for the liberation of three countries in one lifetime. Mm. He, he was very instrumental in the liberation of South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Namibia. Okay, let's quickly now get to, uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. As figure on a PIC, but we must have you back again, Daddy Elias. The 43 Foundation, uh, annual legacy event happening in Manzini. And uh, just talking about Father Larry, uh, of course, this one is about church and state. Yeah. And the concept or the theme this year is about reminding our political principals, our political leaders, that their responsibility is to look after the interests of society, mm. not their selfish ends. And this year, we're going to be having two cardinal speakers and then two others 
plus two people that we're going to be recognizing. The two speakers are um, Reverend Chikane mm. and Father Smangali Somkacho, wow. whom you know very well. Yeah. And then the other speakers, one of them is going to be Sizam Zimela, the former SAA CEO, the one who walked out, walked out of their jobs uh, together with their board mm. because they felt there was unsustainable interference from the state and their personal professions were being compromised. Wow. And linked to that, the Prime Minister of Swaziland is going to be talking. Wow. And the same weekend, we're going to be recognizing none other than the Archbishop Desmond Tutu for the work that he did during post mm. pre-1994 and post-1995 for keeping us in check together with Larry. Baba, we'll have to leave it there and uh, encourage all of you uh, make your way there to uh, Manzini. Even for, for nice things like this. Insightful conversations. Uh, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Elias Masilela, I really appreciate your time and I certainly hope you can promise the Metro FM Talk Faithful that you'll come back. Pandora's box on economic yeah. policy and talk about some of your own experiences there as the former CEO of the PIC, which uh, certainly is coming under a lot of fire. Have to leave it there, and i leave you with the soulful sounds of uh, 9 to midnight uh, with the Sentle. Big thank you, Charles, now it's all for putting together this great product. Have yourself a great evening. Take strength, my Africa. Aska kribuku ibanga le economy.